So let me read from you Daniel 6, starting at verse 6, and I'll read to verse 18. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and the satraps and counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. Um, When we first opened up the book of Daniel, I said that it's both the most familiar and unfamiliar book, um, maybe, that we have in the Bible. The first half of Daniel is very familiar to us. There are stories that we've learned since we were, some of us, little kids, and if you grew up in the church, they're all very familiar stories to you. And then all of a sudden, starting the second half of the book, starting in chapter 7, it's like an alien planet. You, You have no idea what's going on in the book of Daniel. The first half, very familiar. The second half, very confusing. (laughs) It's a strange book. And today, we finish off the first half. um, And next week, we're about to go into that second half, which is like that alien planet that nobody knows how to make sense of. But today, we close off the first half with maybe the most familiar of all the Daniel stories, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Um, But I want to take a fresh look at this chapter with you. And and when you just open up the book and and you look at this chapter with the fresh eyes, one of the things that might be surprising to you is that the chapter actually has a lot more to do with the king and the officials than it has to do with Daniel. This is a uh, passage and a sermon about Daniel's salvation, but it's also just as much a story about the king and about the officials, and what we see here is that King Darius is presented to us as a futile king. 
Not, not an um, evil king so much, but a king who's futile. He's feeling his futility he, he, because he wants to save Daniel, but he can't. And he's coming in contact with his helplessness, and he's coming in contact with his weakness. And that's what we're going to look at today in the passage. King Darius, who wants to save Daniel, but he just can't. And he's coming in contact with just how weak he really is, even as a king. And I want to say that as we look into this, you're going to see a mirror reflection of yourself in King Darius. Because all of us want to change our lives. All of us want good things for ourselves, and we want to move in the direction of God, and we have set a vision for our lives, and we want to move in that direction. But time and time again, we come in contact with our helplessness. We come in contact with our futility. And no matter how much you want to change your life, you keep touching that futility that tells you there's nothing you can do to change your life. It's a miserable feeling, actually, um, when you feel that futility. Um, today, though, uh, God has good news for us. Because what we're going to see in the passage is that futility is very real, but actually God wants to bring you to the point of futility. Because when we reach the point of helplessness, that's when God starts doing his work. And actually, this was not planned, um, but today we send off the Chu family, and it's actually a perfect story for their send-off. Um, because God uh, will show us, not only through the passage, but through our send-off today, how he's the one who provides in our helplessness. So let's pray together um, as we begin the passage. Father, we, we're here bowed, and we're here bowed before you because you are king, and you are the one who can change our lives, and you are the one who can speak to us now. And so now, there's very little that I can offer that we can offer, but your word can come into our heart and change it. And so we set our hearts before you, and we say, Lord, we put ourselves at your mercy. Let your word deconstruct us and build us back up in the image of Christ. And so we make ourselves available now in our hearts to you, we pray you would send your spirit and your word to help us exactly the way that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're talking about futility. Uh, the, the sermon's title is A Vision of Hope in Futility. And what we're going to see is that in the first half of the sermon, you'll see what futility feels like and looks like without the grace of God. And then in the second half of the sermon, you'll see what futility feels like with the grace of God. And you'll just see um, the difference between uh, the, the first and the second. First, we're going to look at what futility feels like without the grace of God. I didn't read to you the first three verses, but let me read it to you now. It, this is how the chapter opens. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them... Three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king may suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. As we begin this chapter, we see that there's another king over Daniel and his people, another king, another leader. Um, and all throughout Daniel, you see this. You see a succession of rulers um, that come into the picture and then leave the picture, right? Just another reminder that God raises up leaders, raises up kings, raises up presidents, and then brings them away, melts them away. And what you see is that even though kings rise and fall, leaders rise and fall, Daniel is standing there throughout the whole thing. 
It's almost as if Daniel never ages, right? He's just always there. And I think that there is a message tucked away under there for us that no matter what happens in our country, no matter what king, ruler, president comes over us, that men and women of God are not like chaff who blow away, but they're like trees who are rooted near streams of living water. And Daniel is like that. No matter which king, Daniel is there. And he's in um, this strong, solid faith. And here he stands before another king. And the, the, the new king, his name is Darius, and he decides to set up a system of government where you have 120 governors, and above them, three high governors that they all report to. Now, Daniel ends up being one of the three, but because of his excellent spirit, the word says, he becomes the first among equals. He becomes the top um, official, over the top officials. And this brings jealousy and hostility among all others, which, you know, that's normal. Everybody else is jealous about him and everyone is showing a hostile heart toward him. But the thing is, they can't do anything about it because there's no way to get at Daniel. There's no complaint or there's no uh, weakness or real error there that they can leverage to get at Daniel. And so they want to bring Daniel down, but it's very, very hard to, which is also another small message tucked away in the big message that, brothers and sisters, our integrity will always protect us. If you live a life of integrity in the character of God, that integrity will protect you. But the officials get together and look for a way to get at Daniel, and they finally found a way. And in verse 4, you see them... Um, colluding together and devising a plan. And in verse 4, it says this, Then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then in verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. There was one thing that they thought that they could use against him, and it's his religion. They saw that this is the one thing that, he, that was set apart in Daniel as compared to the other people. He was very committed to his prayer life. He was very committed to his God. And so they decide to persecute him basically based on his faith. Here's the third little message tucked away in the big message. Paul tells us, brothers and sisters, that all who desire to lead a godly life will be persecuted. All who live a godly life or strive to live a godly life, even if you don't do it perfectly, you will be persecuted. And that's a message for all of us. I had to actually tell this to my, my daughter Mia for the first time at the breakfast table this week. I forget what we were talking about, but I remember telling her at the breakfast table this week, Mia... Look, there's going to come a time when people think you are silly because you believe in God. And for her, you know, she's so sheltered and she hasn't experienced that yet in her life. But I needed to tell her that at an early age. There's going to come a day when people are going to think that you are silly because you believe in God. Now, she didn't fully understand why. It was, but we, brothers and sisters, who are fighting in the faith, we have to know that, and we have to know why. We have to know the reason why that is, and it's not because necessarily just because of your neighbors, your coworkers, and the people that you are with. The reason why that is, is because we do not battle against our neighbors, we don't battle against our coworkers, but our battle is with the spiritual authorities 
the ones who are the powers, rulers, principalities of this world. And because the opposition is real, you will experience that as well. You have to know that. You will experience opposition if you desire to live a godly life. And so they decide to oppose him uh, using his religion. And so they propose an ordinance that anyone who prayed to any god or man besides King Darius would be thrown to the lions. And they didn't need a majority um, of votes in the house. They didn't need to pass it through Congress. They just needed one man's signature, Darius' signature. And as long as they had his signature, they could pass this bill, this ordinance, this injunction. And after they passed it, they just waited for Daniel to pray because they knew he would pray. He always prayed. And so they just waited until he prayed. And it says that he did. He went to his house, to his upper chamber. He opens his door towards Jerusalem and he gets down to pray three times every day the way he always did. And so the officials see that and they come to the king and they say, King, we got him. We got him. We got him praying. We got him doing the exact thing that he was not supposed to do according to this law. He prayed to someone besides you. Now, what I think is interesting about this passage, and and I find to be a central tension in this passage that we're going to focus in on, is the king does not want Daniel to die. The king does not want Daniel to die, probably because he's the most useful one out of all the rest. The king doesn't want him to die, but the thing is, the law has been written. And he's the one who signed it. And so there's nothing that the king can do to undo it. But he tries his best. In verse 14, after he gets the news that Daniel um, has broken the injunction, in verse 14 it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You see, Darius is desperate. And he's distressed. It says he's greatly distressed because he does not want Daniel to be given over to the lions. And so I can imagine him calling all of his officials and all the people who work under him and telling his secretary, we need to cancel and clear out my schedule because we're not letting Daniel die today. And when the king wants to do something big, a lot of people need to be mobilized. And so you see a whole court being mobilized to try to keep Daniel alive, to keep him from being thrown into the lions. And so all these people are scrambling to make sure that Daniel keeps his life. But the thing is, there's nothing that they could do about it. It is written. And there was no way around the injunction. There was no way that they could undo it. And there's no way that they could find a way around it. There were no loopholes for them to work. And so even though the king said that we will labor until his life is saved. We're going to make sure we're going to save his life before sundown. The sun went down, and they're not able to save him. And in verse 15, the men come back to the king and remind him that there's nothing that he could do. In verse 15, it says, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that there is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. There's nothing you can do. You signed the law, and now he's going to be executed. It is written. The word has been written. The law has been signed. King, there's nothing you can do. You cannot go against your own word. You cannot go against your own law. 
That is when you read Daniel 6 with fresh eyes, I think it's a central tension that you see. And you see the king coming to terms with his futility. And he's experiencing just how helpless he is, regardless of how powerful his position or his stature may be. He's coming in contact with just how helpless he is. And even as they put Daniel into the lion's den, it's kind of a sad picture because the king has to be involved in the very thing that he was trying to undo. So when you read verse 16 to 18, the king has to be involved in throwing him into the lion's den. And in verse 16, it says this, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king declared to Daniel, screams into the lion's den, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Think about the irony of that. You know, he does everything that he can to try to keep Daniel from the lion's den, but he's the one that has to go and sign the rock that goes on the door of the den, and that sign says, nobody can change this. Nobody can overturn this. Do you hear the irony of that? He tried. Nobody can overturn it. And now he's coming to terms with his own helplessness. He doesn't eat. All the food needs to be taken away and probably thrown out. The jester who gives his nightly show to the king, he has to go back in his room. The court is silent and the king is sitting in his anxiety, his panic, because he's feeling the limits of his ability. He's coming to touch his futility. And all the illusions of power and grandeur, they're stripped away. And he's just left with this feeling of, there's nothing I can do. And brothers and sisters, that's something that I think that we can all relate to. You know, we all in our lives feel that futility in our lives. There's so many things that you want to change about yourself. There's so many things that you want to change about your life. But do you know that feeling of futility? Of not being able to do something to change your life. Do you know the feeling of not being able to change ourselves? whether it be in your career, your marriages, your relationships, just the way you are inside and the things that you want to change about yourself, but you keep coming in contact with your own futility, you keep coming in contact with your own helplessness. Do you know that feeling and how discouraging that feeling is? When you know that there are things that you have to change about yourself and your life and you just can't seem to do it. I think in the midst of the pandemic, this has been even more aggravated in our lives. You know, when the pandemic first started, they told us that we have to wipe down our groceries. And when it first started, I don't know if you remember, but they told us that masks did nothing. And people were buying toilet paper out of panic. Do you remember that? When all this first started, and then they told us, you don't have to wipe down your groceries. And then they told us, you better wear your masks. And we were all in frantic action, buying toilet paper and and doing whatever we can to try to make ourselves feel safer, even though we didn't have all the information. Because we felt helpless. 
And feeling helpless is a terrible and scary place to be. I think this pandemic has reminded us of what futility feels like and what helplessness feels like. And it's not just kind of broader, but also in our emotional lives. Have you felt this? I mean, the more people that I talk to in the midst of the pandemic, you get this sense of frustration and emotional turmoil, relationships going down the drain, marriages being tested, the way that we talk to our kids. But maybe the the most stark thing that I've seen is the spiritual struggle of how hard it's been spiritually. And everyone is coming in contact with their helplessness and everyone is coming in contact with their futility and they're incredibly discouraged because of it. It's a devastating feeling when you come in contact with your futility. But today, I have good news. The good news is that those who know the grace of God, futility and weakness is not the end of our story. But that for those who know the grace of Jesus Christ, actually, futility is where God starts his work. And I want to show you what futility looks like with God's grace. And I want to show you that it is a completely opposite picture of what happens with those without grace. When you look at verse 19 to 23, you see the rescue of Daniel. In verse 19, it says, Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What's interesting is that I think that this is a story not just about Daniel being rescued. I think this is a story about the king. The king's futility and him experiencing the grace of God and the ability of God to show up in the midst of our helplessness. You know, when you contrast the two men, it's pretty incredible because you see Darius, who's not going in the lion's den at all, But he is sleepless at night. He's in frantic action. He's trying to fix the problem. He's not eating, and he's so disturbed inside. And then you have Daniel, on the other hand, who's actually the one who's going to live with the lions for the night. And you get the sense that he's in complete peace, that he has strength, that he's not shaken. You see two very different experiences of helplessness. And that's something that we have to see, that both men are experiencing the same level of helplessness. If anything, Daniel is more helpless because there's nothing Daniel can do. While the king can try to overdo his junction, there's nothing that Daniel can do. And yet, despite the fact that Daniel is even more helpless, he experiences peace and strength. Which one are you in the midst of the pandemic? All of us, all of a sudden, are helpless. All of us, all of a sudden, are experiencing futility. Are you Darius or are you Daniel? You see, the difference maker in the two experiences was that Daniel knew about the grace of God. 
He knew that because of the grace of God, that his helplessness and him being thrown to the lions did not mean that was the end of his story. Whereas Darius was fearing that this was going to be the end of his official. Daniel knew something that we need to know today. And the thing that he needs to know, that we need to know, that he knew, is that weakness, our weakness, is not a sign that we are doomed. You know, if you kind of unpack why you get so anxious uh, when you feel your own futility, it's this. is that when you feel your weakness, when you feel your inability, that freaks you out because you think that that's a marker that things are going to go in the dumps. Another way to say it is that we think that weakness is evidence that we are doomed. Right? That when we feel our weakness, we think that that's evidence that we are doomed. If we are helpless, then we are doomed. But brothers and sisters, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our helplessness is where God starts. Don't you see? That's the gospel message that we have forgotten. That our weakness is where God begins his work. And he has to bring us there. Paul knew about this um, in 2 Corinthians. He begins to talk about this. And he talks about this experience that he had in weakness. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And we, we really don't know what he was talking about specifically. But there was something, him that, something in him that was making him weak. And he was praying to God and pleading with God that he would take the weakness away and that God would make him strong. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, take away my weakness and give me strength. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to the prayer. Paul said, take away my weakness and make me strong. And God said, no, because it's inside of your weakness that my strength is shown, is perfected. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The picture is of kind of like a light, you know, that when you walk around with a flashlight during the day, it's not that bright. But then you walk into a dark room and that flashlight is all of a sudden powerfully illuminated. So you see, Paul says, take away my darkness. But God says, no, because in your darkness, my flashlight burns bright. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And we have a problem with that because that doesn't feel that great. It doesn't feel that great because God's method is to maintain our weakness and decouple it with his strength. He doesn't want to take away your weakness, but he wants to maintain your weakness, but then give you his strength. That doesn't feel that good all the time. Because we like to feel strength. But don't you know, brothers and sisters, that that's exactly how grace works. How grace works is power is given to those who are helpless. That's, by definition, what grace is. Power given to those who are helpless. Grace is when power is given to those who are helpless. And that's our gospel story. When you read the... Um, the account here in Daniel 6, you have to see your story. This story is your story. Except we had it a lot worse than this. The lions were not lions, but the lion 
is a lion who prowls around looking to devour us. And the law wasn't an injunction that the king approved by accident. It was the law of God. It was the law of God. It was written and that weighed heavily on us. It was the law of God, the word of God, and it could not be overturned. It not, could not be undone because it was the law of God and it was crushing us, sending us to the lions. But the grace of God was that he came and he, the king, stepped into Daniel's place and he died on Daniel's behalf. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, the law stood. And instead of making you strong enough to uphold the law, which we call um, salvation by works, instead of making Daniel strong enough to uphold the law, he made Daniel get out of the way. And the king stepped in and got crushed by the law. And he himself was taken by the lions. Don't you see this story is your story? This is your story. And God, by grace, saved you. That's how he always works, which means that he's not always going to take away your futility. He's not always going to take away your helplessness. Because the way God saves is he maintains your weakness and he maintains his strength and he comes and he saves you in your weakness. You see, he didn't make Daniel a lion slayer. He didn't make Daniel strong to kill lions. He came and he saved him in his weakness. I think that's hard for us. I think that's hard for us to have a God like that, but that's exactly the kind of God that we need. You see, that's how he works. If you could picture um, salvation kind of like a restaurant, and you go to a restaurant and it's called, I don't know, let's say it's called the Feast of God's Salvation, right? And you come and you knock on the door and you want to get a seat at the table and, um, you know, you try your best to look impressive and you hand the guy a 20 and you say, um, can I have a seat at the feast, you know? And he says, what's this money? You know, don't give me any money. Like, this doesn't do anything. And then you say, okay, well, can I have a, you know, a seat here? And you look around and all the tables, it says reserved. And you wonder, why are they all reserved? And you say, can I get a seat at the table? And he says, of course. But they're all reserved, so I have to see if you fit the list. And he says to you, strong or weak? Strong or weak? You say, what? Strong or weak? And you say, uh, Strong. And he looks at the list and he says, I'm sorry, we, we don't have a table for you. We don't have a table for you. The way God's feast works is you have to be weak. No strong people allowed. I'm sorry. These are reserved. Salvation is reserved for the weak. I'm sorry. If you want to be saved by your own strength, then I suggest you try Buddhism. I suggest you try Islam. I suggest you try atheism, naturalism. But the feast of Jesus Christ is only for the weak. These are reserved for those who are helpless. And these tables are reserved for people who feel their futility and they want God's grace. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Have you forgotten that's how God works? 
that when we feel futile, when we feel helpless, he starts working. That's what it means when we say we are people saved by grace. We are people saved by grace. And that's how he works in your life. But have you forgotten that? I want to close with just two applications. And the first application is this, that today you may be feeling futility because that's exactly where God wants to take you, to a place of helplessness. But you're fighting it. But he wants to take you to a place of helplessness. And this message, and this is always the case with um, the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is always a great encouragement for those who are humble, broken. The gospel of grace is always an encouragement to those who know that they're helpless. But it's always a challenging, challenging gospel for the proud. Maybe one of the reasons that God is doing all the things that are happening in your life is because he's taking you to futility. And you wonder, why would he take me to futility? Doesn't he know just how terrible it feels to feel helpless? Doesn't he know how awful it feels to not be able to change your situation? Doesn't he know that? Why would he take me to futility? My answer to you is, my brother, my sister, he knows that feeling more than you. He was nailed to a cross, not only unable to move, unable to breathe. He knows the feeling of futility better than us. But he's taking you there because he knows that that's where God shows up and perfects his strength in your weakness. And you stop and you look up and you lift your hands up to receive his grace. He might be taking you to futility. Do you remember the story of Naaman, strong man from government? But then he got sick. He got leprosy. He got leprosy and, you know, the strong man, he wanted to get a cure for his leprosy because he wanted to get rid of his weakness the way that Paul prayed, Lord, take this weakness away from me. And so here's what he did. He, way, he went in the way of the world. He went to his king, the most powerful person that he knows, works his connections, and gets his king to write a letter of recommendation to the king of Israel. And the letter of recommendation said, O king of Israel, Naaman is this mighty man. He is a good man. Please order your prophet Elisha to heal him. So he goes the path of strength, and he brings this letter to the king. And he, you know, I'm sure he's dressed very impressively. He's bringing all sorts of things to the king as gifts. And the king of Israel, when he receives this letter, you know what he does? He tears his clothes. And he says, why did he bring me this letter? And essentially his message to Naaman was, Naaman, this might be how it works in your world. But this is God's nation. I don't tell the prophet what to do. I can't take your letter of recommendation and get you into a place of special care. You have to crawl to the prophet. It's a hard thing for a man like Naaman to do. But he goes to the prophet and he gets a double dose of humility because he goes to the prophet and the prophet tells him, go wash in that river. And that offends Naaman. This is such a strange thing, right? It's a very easy order, but it offends him. 
He offends him. He says, aren't there better rivers that I can wash in? Why wash in this dirty little river in Israel? Why would I do that? And then a young little servant comes up to him. The best, I think, the most powerful person in that whole story. And she says to him, my master, if he told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If the prophet came to you and said, I want you to go slay 15 bears and bring back their paws. I want you to go and destroy 10 lions and bring me back their manes. If he told you to do some great thing, I know you would have been excited. You see, Naaman, he wanted to be a great man. He wanted to be like Hercules, who had to overcome his challenges and earn his salvation. He wanted to be like Achilles. He wanted to be like Ulysses. He wanted to be like these worldly figures that overcome, and by overcoming, they get their healing. But then he went to Elisha, and he said, just go wash. And that offended Naaman. Such a strong man. And because he was a strong man, he refused to make himself helpless. And the servant girl says to him, he told you something easy to do. Why are you so offended? You know, brothers and sisters, God wants us to be helpless. But the biggest thing that's in our way is we are proud. And we don't want to be helpless. We'd rather be conquerors. But I want to tell you today that he's made you more than a conqueror. He's made you not a conqueror. He's made you more than a conqueror. He's made you someone who is connected to the king himself. Do not despise your weakness. He may be using it to take you to the place of strength. The last um, application that I want to give, I know that that wasn't really an application, that nothing you could do practically, but it's a shift of heart, you know. But here's the thing that you really could do um, practically, and that's pray. You know, prayer is that thing that we think is weak and futile and we haven't gotten our, our prayers answered. And it's something that we look at and we say, it's so weak. And so we don't do it. Well, brothers and sisters, prayer is where you will transition from experiencing futility without grace to transitioning to futility with grace. You know what futility without grace looks like? It looks like this. You come in touch with your helplessness and you panic. And you start doing all sorts of things to try to make yourself feel better. You try to look for a great thing to do like Naaman. And you start to panic and you start to act and you start to get in, into states of anxiety and you start moving frantically like Darius. That's what futility without grace feels like. But futility with grace, you know what it feels like? You come in touch with your helplessness and you drop to your knees to access grace. We've walked away from prayer because we thought it was futile. But I want to remind you today that prayer is how you access strength. It's how you access the strength of God. My favorite book on prayer is really old and very few people know it. It's just called Prayer. It's just a little old book. I still think it's the best. It's by a man named O. Halsby. And, um, you know, I've read a lot of books on prayer uh, because it's actually easier to read books on prayer than to just pray. And so I've read a lot of books on prayer. But I, I really like this one. Um, and 
the cost of the book is worth the first chapter because in the first chapter he tells us that the door into prayer, if you want to become a praying person, the only real door into a praying life is to understand your helplessness. If you don't get that, you'll never pray because you'll always find alternatives to do things for yourself. And I want to read you a quote uh, from the book. I've pieced together different sentences. And this is what he says. He says, as far as I could see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only those who are helpless can truly pray. Listen, my friend, your helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God. He hears it from the very moment you are seized with helplessness. Our helplessness is one continuous appeal to the Father's heart. Prayer is for the helpless. If you don't know the power of prayer, then you're probably, like Darius, experiencing your futility and freaking out. On the outside, you might not look like it. But on the inside, there's a, a pool of anxiety always bubbling up. If you discover prayer, then you will know what the hymn writers, why the hymn writer, old one, wrote, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what pain we needless bear. All because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. So needless, we freak out. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. My brothers and sisters, I call you um, to access grace in your futility. And he'll give you strength. Let's go to him in prayer together as we respond. I just want to give you a moment to, to go to him with the ways that you feel your futility and the ways that you've been feeling your helplessness. Maybe in the midst of COVID-19, you felt it like never before, but it's just made you a bitter person. It's just made you an anxious person. It's just made you someone who wanted to be like Naaman and have found yourself lacking. My brother, my sister, oh, what peace you have forfeited. Oh, what needless pain you bear because you want to be strong or because you hate the feeling of futility but Jesus has a really good message of hope for you today that you have a God who helps people who only people who are helpless he has only reserved tables of grace for those who are weak and so do not despair but go to him and access the grace that he has for you. Your weakness is not the end of your story. It's the beginning of God's. So I encourage you to go to him with all of the burdens that you have, all the things that are making you feel like you're working in futility, and to say, Lord, I will even boast in my weakness, for I know that when I am weak, you are strong. Let's go to our Father together in prayer.
come to you and we admit that we are all equally helpless. Whether we're far more like Darius or we're more like Daniel, we are equally helpless. But we want to come to you in confession and tell you we hate this feeling. We hate this feeling because we want to be our own God and it makes us realize that we're not. And we hate that. Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts so that you would help us to see that our futility, our weakness, is where you want to take us because you want to be our God. Because you want to be the star of our story. You want to give us your provision and testimony. So Father, we pray, I pray, help us to understand in our hearts today by conviction what Paul said. Therefore, I will even boast in my weaknesses. For I know that when I finally get to the place of weakness, he is strong. That takes faith, Lord. That's so different from what we know from the world. But we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see that. And that through that, that you would give the weak hope. And that you would give the strong humility. And that you would give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all rise and let's respond to God. Yeah.